The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, November 6th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Joe Biden is poised to be president-elect. Or maybe it's still a few days away. Maybe he'll just be president-presumed until then. We need more hyphenates in this world. Past presidents-elect didn't have to face what he has to face, the prospect of an opponent who doesn't acknowledge, tell the truth, or concede. But luckily, Trump won't actually be his opponent for long. He'll be the guy who used to be president and maybe still says he is. Like podcast Bill O'Reilly instead of Fox News Bill O'Reilly. But there is still some disquiet as to why Democrats' down ballot didn't do better. The competing arguments are, one, there might have been a woke lash, or two, they had an uninspiring standard bearer. First argument, people voted their social leanings and people hate the way the left tells them they're no good. And at least Trump says, you're A-OK, unless you're AOC. Tied into the woke lash argument is an explanation as to why so many polls were off. You know, people know and they understand the socially acceptable opinion. They just don't actually share it. So they don't want to share it with pollsters. And maybe they use the ballot box to express their own opinions, not the ones that are approved of by someone else. That's one argument. The other is Joe Biden's just some sort of anti-turnout machine. Dems would have been better served by an exciting candidate. And of course, in this argument, exciting always means more leftish, but also, you know, just a traditional communicator. I have a theory, a different theory. I don't know if I even believe it, but it needs to be put out there. What if it turns out that all this time campaigning actually works? What if the things that politicians have always done, like pressing the flesh or knocking on doors or holding public events, actually helps candidates get elected? Every polar prognostication ever done about who's the right candidate or what's the right message or what's the right campaign sign and slogan assumes that the candidates in the race will try hard and not abandon the tools of campaigning that have been used for years. It would be hard to design an experiment, however, where one side just unilaterally for some reason decides to stop using the most effective tools of getting elected. And yet that is just what happened in 2020. And not just presidentially. We focus way too much on the president. I'm talking about down the ballot, up and down the ballot. The Democrats, generally wary of the pandemic, rightly so, I think. Democrats waded into things more, taking chances. I think it sent iffy messages, but that's what happened. I don't think it was a mistake or a blunder on behalf of the Democrats. If anything, it was motivated by the right impulses. But it is what happened, and I think it might have had an effect. So we had Scott Braddock on our show to talk about elections in Texas. Here he is on his own podcast, the Texas Take podcast, doing an assessment of what happened down the ballot in Texas. But I do think that the difference in the way the Republicans and the Democrats, and this came right from the top, from President Trump and, and Joe Biden, um, the way that the two parties approached campaigning during the pandemic really had an impact here. We wrote about this a lot at quorumreport.com, uh, the idea that you had Republicans um, just doing traditional block walking like they normally would in these local races. And that, that applies in the, especially in the Texas House races, but in the congressional races as well. Now, I went along and reported from uh, you know, some of these block walking efforts during the pandemic, and it wasn't rocket surgery, as they say in East Texas. You know, they were um, you know, knocking the door, they were knocking on the door, 
they're wearing a mask. They would hang a, um, you know, a piece of literature on the door, step back 10 feet. And if the person came to the door, they would engage them in a conversation. Democrats for months refused to do anything like that. Uh, in these races that are local, local races, you have to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with voters. That's always been, you know, the old axiom in Texas politics. And I think around the country, if you're walking, then we're talking. So just consider this. What if the one side that didn't perform the usual acts of campaigning when it came to getting elected, what if that side underperformed? And even if an undecided voter or a swing voter, or just a not, a not very plugged in voter said to himself or herself, well, you know, I don't think a, a rally is a great idea. I wouldn't go to a rally. You know what? Those rallies were on TV a lot and Trump was acting like a candidate who wanted your vote and you got to hear him say that often. And the same was true of Senate candidates and the same was true in smaller settings of House candidates and state legislature candidates. In an age when people are anxious about when they could get back to work, both Republicans and Democrats had an answer. The Republicans said, right now. The Democrats said, when it's safe. But the Republicans said it right into the face of voters, right next to them, and the Democrats were more cautious about saying it at all. You know what? Let's go back. Was it woke lash? Was it bad candidate Biden? Was it Trump was more popular than we could ever know? We, we really can never find the answer to this. And you could always cite your pet theory that fits in with your particular worldview. That is the great thing about the information age. You could be presented with all sorts of new evidence and never have to ever change your mind. But it is true that you will never change your mind or your electoral preference if you don't hear the evidence in the first place. On the show today, I spiel about, well, a close cousin of what I just said, the explanation for the House of Representatives underperforming on the Democratic side, as argued by actual Democratic members of the House of Representatives. But first, a really good conversation, implying that the others, you know, that I've done, they're, they're only okay. Al Franken does this all the time. Finally, we've got a good one. But I'll say it, we've got a good one with Emily Bazelon of the New York Times and the Slate Political Gap Fest. She has been all over the story of how our electoral apparatus would hold up under the scrutiny. So, was it a stress test or a heart attack? Plus, strategy, tactics, and the fine line between dismissing and ignoring our prevaricating president. Emily Bazelon up next. I'm joined now by Emily Bazelon, who is the author of Charged and a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and of course, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. Hello, Emily. Thanks for joining me. Let's talk about all manner of things, shall we? Yes, I'm excited. You were on this. You were reporting the possibilities of what came to be known as the Red Mirage. That wasn't even a phrase in the lexicon. And we're living it now. So how much of what you foresaw and reported on in terms of the vote presenting itself one way on election day and then the reality becoming something else, how much of what you reported on and anticipated has come true? It really did come true in Pennsylvania. And what you're talking about, of course, is this days-long wait we've all just experienced to find out the results of the election. When I started reporting on this pandemic election last spring, and in particular the challenges of this huge shift to voting by mail that was happening, what I realized about Pennsylvania and also Wisconsin is that in the past, these are states that have had very low rates of absentee balloting. So they had just never done a huge vote by mail operation before. They started gearing up for it. And then they realized that there was nothing in state law that allowed them to start the 
counting early. So they anticipated they'd be having these piles of mail-in ballots mounting in elections offices, and they went to the legislature and they said, hey, can we start processing these ballots early? And in both states, Republicans essentially refused to let that happen. In Pennsylvania, what happened was that the Republicans wanted to not have an extended deadline for returning ballots postmark on Election Day. And they also wanted people to be able to be poll watchers in counties that they did not live in. And Governor Wolf, who's a Democrat in Pennsylvania, he apparently didn't accede to those conditions. And so the Republicans walked away and said, okay, no early counting. Similar in Wisconsin, there was no early counting. And so these states were at a real disadvantage in comparison to a state like Ohio or Florida, where they had weeks to process the ballots ahead of time. I wonder what you think, like, in retrospect, should the Democrats in Pennsylvania have taken that deal? I wonder if the Republicans should have struck a different deal in Pennsylvania. I don't know if the Democrats should have taken the deal. You know, the answer to that will probably be tied up in if other states prove the threshold and then the pressure is off Pennsylvania. But I'm trying to think of not just the Republicans in Pennsylvania. Maybe they had a bad strategy. You know, you do what you can to gain an advantage. But instead of the massive denunciation and discrediting or attempted discrediting of early voting, maybe they should have tried for some different agenda items because it doesn't seem that even if the early vote was discredited, especially among Republicans, that that will have any actual effect. I guess I'd say two things. One is that I don't actually know if these ballots that come in between November 3rd and November 6th are really going to be dispositive in any of the states where they allowed later time periods. And I should say there are other states like North Carolina and Nevada where ballots are going to be coming in, you know, through part of next week. I do understand why people in Democratic parts of Pennsylvania were concerned about you know, poll watchers from other parts of the state, given how much kind of ginning up of like, you know, we have a whole bunch of people coming to, quote, defend the polls that, you know, people like Donald Trump Jr. were talking about. Like there was this anticipation of the possibility of some serious voter intimidation. Now, none of that materialized. Those people didn't show up anywhere. But I kind of get why the Pennsylvania Democrats weren't excited about having poll observers from outside of counties. On the other hand, I also think that, like, it is very clear that the states like Florida and Ohio that counted early had a better process. And going forward, thinking about how elections should be run in the future, we're probably going to continue to have a lot more voting by mail. And we should look to the states that did it well. Other states, too, Colorado, Washington State, that have been doing a lot of vote by mail for a long time. We should have some set of best practices that come out of this. Oh, absolutely. You know, Oregon, Utah, these vote-by-mail states are like, uh, what's the problem? So maybe some other states will take 20 years to catch up. But here's my analysis of what the Republicans, the Republicans control the legislature. They had chips on a couple of theories of voter suppression. Let's just call it that. They want fewer people to be allowed to vote and especially fewer Democrats. One tried and true theory that really works for voter suppression is asking for voter ID, for instance. There is data on that. But they were just assuming or presuming that the poll watcher issue might suppress the vote, but it didn't. They were assuming or presuming that some of the other things that they were asking for might suppress the vote. But 
what the facts show and what the data shows is that mail-in ballots are more likely to be spoiled or a vote is more likely to be discounted because of a mistake on a mail-in ballot than a day of ballot. So I think that not only they were wrong, but President Trump was wrong in trying to lower the number of mail-in ballots at all. In fact, the only reason you do this is you fear that Pennsylvania, just if the free will of the voters were expressed, that your candidate won't win. So what you have to try to do is somehow get in the way of the free will of the voters. And the more mail-in ballots there were, the more chances there are to argue that some of them shouldn't be counted. Anyway, that's my theory. Maybe it's because of retrospect. No, I think that there was a lot of that going on. Also, when you look at the data about rejected ballots, absentee ballots, you see racial disparity and age disparity. So, you know, black voters, Latino voters, young voters who all skew Democratic, they are the people who are more likely to have their ballots rejected. And so... Right. Not be assiduous about handing it in in the case of young young voters. Or just their signatures don't match because they just don't have like a, a secure signature yet. <laughs> right. Right. When you're just signing, when your only signature practice is signing on the CVS thing that they never look at, why should your signature get good? Right. But it's interesting, you know, what happened in this election was there was a real push to contact people who had technical defects on their ballots and get them to, quote, cure the problem. That's what it's called. And so you see that's still happening. We're talking on Friday. Today in Georgia, people are frantically calling these 40,000 voters to try to get them to fix the problem. And so in a state like Florida, for example, in past elections, Florida has rejected uh, more than 1% of absentee ballots. That's actually a lot of people. That's thousands of people. This year, their rate of rejection came down to 03 because people were getting contacted and they were paying attention. And so that's another just like factor in all of this and how it's played out. Mm -hmm. And I also think that has something to do with Donald Trump making such a huge deal about absentee ballots. It focuses one's attention. Just like often uh, attempts at voter suppression have the opposite effect because maybe indifference is the friend to the voter suppressor as opposed to actual active measures. Right. I mean, there is this way in which when you threaten people's right to vote, you make it seem more precious. And the president attacked a method of voting, right? Like in Mm -hmm. the past, the kinds of suppression you're talking about, that's about like shaving off voters at the margins. And this was more about like deterring everybody or everyone Trump could get to listen to him from voting by mail. In the end, it's your own supporters who are likely to listen to you. And look, I mean, Trump got huge turnout on election day. But I don't think there's any evidence that he succeeded in deterring the um, opponents of his who were submitting these mail-in ballots. And you're right, like, if there's a tidal wave of them, then even if more of them are rejected, it's still a net gain. Right. We're pretty lucky. And in a weird way, we got lucky if what you want is a fair election with honest results in that there are there are four or five states where the result is still in doubt that are going on simultaneously. So because of the fracturing of the different counts and also because of the different nature, it just makes the argument, I guess, the forces of suppression more diffuse, less focused, and I think less effective. 
I totally agree. I think that turned into a real saving grace for just preserving the integrity of the election, right? For exactly the reasons you say. I mean, just think about the litigation part of this and the allegations of fraud. So, you know, President Trump is making these baseless accusations of fraud, as was anticipated. And some of his lawyers are trying to argue this in court. But you need evidence. And if you need evidence in five states and you're behind by thousands or tens of thousands of votes in all of those states, it just starts to seem increasingly out of reach. And I think that we're seeing that in the silence of a lot of other Republicans who are not necessarily, you know, loudly speaking with President Trump. Now, I mean, I would like to see them sticking up for the integrity of the democratic process and being loud defenders of the election. But I think the the way in which these multiple places Trump would have to try to gin up all these false allegations of fraud, I think that's just really tough to deliver. Though I do worry about whether um, the people who just believe President Trump are going to think that this election was a fraud, even though we don't have evidence of that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. The president makes erroneous claims, and for the most part, they are called erroneous. Even on Fox election night, they were fine. Their decision desk is fine. I'd like to see a little more forceful denunciation from one of their main news anchors, Brett Baer. But that is, without question, lies should be called lies. But are we in some way giving too much credence or mind share to these statements that are untethered from reality? I know in practical terms, you have to rebut lies with the truth. But could it be the case that the best way to think about the things Trump says is to not think about them? I love that idea. I think the problem is that there is a significant percentage of the country that does not follow along. And so you have to figure out what to do about them. So, you know, you're right about Fox News. However, you know, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, very much like in this fake suspicion, cheating allegations mode this week. And it was also interesting to watch Facebook and Twitter really trying to shut this down. Like they were, you know, Twitter is slapping a bunch of labels on Trump's false tweet this week. Facebook was imposing these circuit breakers to make sure that false posts didn't go viral. They tried to root out a group called Stop the Stealing. YouTube, however, didn't have real defenses. And so you saw disinformation circulating on there. And I just, we'll see. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see in polls after this election when people are asked if they trust the results, how high the percentage of people who don't trust the results is. And if it's significant, then I don't think we can just afford to ignore it. Yeah. No, I wouldn't say ignore, but a consequence we could live with is a grousy president who gets to nurse his grievance, not really liking what happened, but there being no constitutional crisis by hook or crook he goes. And a consequence we could live with is also a bunch of people who, as their political hobby, like to listen to Rush Limbaugh or watch Laura, Sean and Tucker being miffed about it. And, you know, some right wingers can fundraise off of them. Fine, acceptable American pluralism. You got to live with that. And maybe that's what's going to happen. And in fact, maybe that would happen without uh, so much coverage of the words that the president says and every single anchor on the legitimate news networks having to take their shot, replay those words and say how terrible those words were. 
I really wish that American pluralism didn't have to include a significant percentage of people disbelieving in the very process itself and its legitimacy, right? Like, I'm totally fine with people being angry with Democrats because they don't agree with their positions. Like, all that partisan political division, sure, American pluralism. The idea that now this extends to saying that the entire structure of the democracy is corrupt that worries me. Like, that's the glue that should still be sticking. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I think Stacey Abrams is an absolute hero of this election. Do you think if Florida had a Stacey Abrams, that vote might be for Biden? Here are stories I really want to read in the coming months. I would love to hit, read a deep dive into the Florida Democratic Party. Like, what happened in my da- in Miami-Dade County? That could be a separate story or part of the same story. I would also really like to read about those counties in southern Texas in the Rio Grande Valley that seem to have just enormously shifted from Obama and Clinton to President Trump. What is going yeah. on there? Star County, Texas got 30 or 6,000 more votes for Trump than last time in a, in a, in a place with 30,000 total votes. Kind of crazy. Yeah, there's been a lot of legitimate pushback this week on the idea that there's some monolithic Latino community, and I totally agree with that. It's not monolithic, but the fact that there seem to be significant inroads the Republicans are making with Latino voters, that's another thing I would really like to understand. I would like to have, I don't think I have zero grip, but I would like to have a much better grip on the multiplicity of the Latino voters and what, what they're looking for and like what is or isn't speaking to them. Yeah. Last question I want to ask is about your emotions at the moment or perhaps the moment where Joe Biden is declared the winner. That that might not happen, but it looks increasingly like it will be. And by the time our listeners hear this, it might have already happened. So I am sensing, and I talked about this on the show yesterday, I guess what a lot of people wanted, maybe what I wanted was not only our team to win the World Series, but in the seventh inning, we put a marriage proposal on the Jumbotron. She says <laughs> yes, he says yes, and the team is so enthralled by that, that they pay for the engagement ring, right? That's what we wanted. And all we got was that World Series win or maybe a free engagement ring or maybe a yes. So we're comparatively disappointed. But where are your emotions? Uh, You could take my analogy or analogize it to something more pertinent to your life. (laughs) I guess I'd say two things. I mean, I was paying so much attention to just like the integrity of the election. I mean, literally, like, were the ballots going to get printed? Were they going to get delivered? Like, could these big cities get it together to tabulate them. So I feel extremely relieved that the election went off smoothly. And, you know, in Tuesday, on Tuesday, I was in Philadelphia just seeing people vote at the polls. It's very moving to see all these people come out. Like, it just is, no matter where you go. I find that act of faith in the, the democracy so um, expressive every time, right? Like, it's an irrational act to think that your ballot among these thousands, tens, thousands, millions of ballot actually counts. And yet, like, people do it. Um, And so to me, the record turnout, like, is an accomplishment in itself. I think, though, you're asking a different question, which is about No, that's it. I want to pause you because I want to pause. That's interesting and an insight, I think, into you. What you're articulating is that 
you're not even invested. You are invested, but you're not drawing most of your emotions from the product of the election. The process has thrilled you. Yes. Maybe that's just your orientation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And look, I realize that it's super important to look beyond that, but I sort of want to just like pause a moment. I mean, it was a huge feat to pull off this election. Like last summer, I was really worried about how it was all just going to work mechanically. And Mm -hmm. like tons, thousands of state and local officials, they just like did their jobs. They just got it together. And I, I'm really just moved by that. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, the Slate Political Gab Fest and Yale Law School. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. The number one explanation for any ambiguous phenomenon is to double down on the notions that you walked into the situation with. You know, hey, it's what I've been saying all along. That is where we go to. So Moses parts the Red Sea. The Jews say, eh, it goes to show. I've been saying all along, we're the chosen people. The anti-Semites say, I knew those Jews had secret powers. That's why they're dangerous. The example I usually use goes back to 9-11. I remember reading editorials by people who are against SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, sometimes called Star Wars, you know, missiles in space to knock down the other missiles. And the opponents of Star Wars, the people who never thought it would work or a good idea or wasn't worth it or all of them say, see, the 9-11 attacks goes to show what I've always been saying. It is folly to pursue such a plan when we could be attacked not by missiles, but by airplanes and people with box cutters. But proponents of SDI said, oh my God, this goes to show what we've been saying all along, why we need Star Wars. It shows the seriousness and capability of even non-state rogue actors to attack us. It's what I've always been saying all along. Now, Democrats, they didn't do so well in the midterms. Some say it's a backlash against progressivism. AOC tweets, so the whole progressivism is bad argument just doesn't have any compelling evidence that I've seen. When it comes to defund and socialism attacks, people need to realize these are racial resentment attacks. You're not going to make that go away. You can make it less effective. Okay, well, I think defund the police was a really stupid slogan. I said so several times on, on this program. Now, I didn't know that a Republican saying that a Democrat wants to defund the police, especially when that Democrat doesn't, which is like 99.99% of all Democrats, I didn't know that that would be some huge electoral winner. And maybe it wasn't. But here's what happened. Every politician who was said to be in a, an unsafe seat, every Republican politician who wanted to stay in office in Georgia, in Texas, in Michigan, places where the state house was said to be in play, All of them use that argument against their opponents. And almost all of them won. None of those state houses flipped. Now, does that mean that using the argument worked? We can't say that. There was a correlation, not a causation, but it was a tactic they used. It was an argument they used against Democrats. And then Democrats were put in the position to explain, oh, that's not what I personally mean. That's not what others mean. Uh, We don't mean it or we do mean it when we say abolish ICE, but we don't mean it when we say defund the police or end jails. There's another slogan that either we do mean or don't mean or it's okay that some people say it or it's not. But anyway, there is a phrase in politics. If you're explaining, you're losing. But to be fair, maybe you're just explaining. Joe Biden also explained often that he didn't want to defund the police and he won. 
So as far as AOC is not seeing evidence that convinces her that her entire worldview and life goal doesn't work, that is not shocking. It's like I've always said, it's not shocking. AOC's fellow Democratic Party caucus member is Abigail Spanberger. She eked out a victory in her Virginia district, and on a conference call with her fellow Democrats today, she laced into them. I I think that we need to be pretty clear about the fact that Tuesday, from a congressional standpoint, it was a failure. It was not a success. Now I'm going to jump in, help you out here, because the audio ain't great. Spanberger goes on to say, I'm not talking about fresh emotion, because there were members apparently crying on that call, but because Democrats lost seats they shouldn't have lost, and you have to look at what the Republicans were saying in attack ads to understand why. And you have to look at the way we talk down to people. They say we believe in defund the police. She went on to talk about the concern she heard from constituents about defunding the police. The number one concern and things that people brought to me in my that I barely rewind was defunding the police. And I've heard some colleagues who have said, oh, it's the language of the street. We should respect that. We're in Congress. We are professionals. We are supposed to talk about things in the way where we mean what we're talking about. If we don't mean we should defund the police, we shouldn't say that. So here's more language of the streets. Speak her truth. What Abigail Spanberger is doing there is speaking her truth. That is true for Abigail Spanberger in her type of district saying socialism hurts there. Going overboard to respect protesters' chants, that hurts her. That having fairly radical-seeming proposals fall from the lips of fellow Democrats that may or may not move the Overton window and that may or may not be Abigail Spanberger's policy prescriptions, that hurts her. But to someone from an AOC-type district, none of that hurts. And AOC is speaking her truth. And her ability and the ability of like-minded left-leaning Democrats does connect with activism, does excite people, does connect with youth. I would say it is more likely to yield a big change, which AOC is probably suspicious that Abigail Spanberger actually wants. Just like AOC probably wasn't especially taken by Spanberger citing her own CIA background in the need for an after-action report. This call, this family call, which lasted three hours and was leaked to the Washington Post, at least, though, shows that Democrats are being rational. I mean, the things they're debating are the tension within the party. They're not chasing ghosts. They know they have decisions to make. You know, the the parameters of the debate are the right one. There's no answer as to which is the right path forward. But as every Democrat I've heard from this week points out, there is the math. Right? They're talking about the presidential election, but let's talk about the math. The math says that without a significant number of moderate Democrats, Democrats in district that could very much go to Republicans, even the more left-leaning Democrats will never get their policies passed. If every very liberal member of the House of Representatives were to be replaced by a challenger who was two places to her right, all those seats would still be Democrat. But if every moderate member were to be replaced by a person a half step to the right, that person is called a Republican, and there goes the Democratic majority. Spanberger wasn't even advising about which policies to favor. She was just talking about which slogans to adopt or rebut. You know who gets this? The Republicans get this. There are plenty of members in their coalition who actually don't think that covering pre-existing conditions is sound economic policy. But they all say, oh, yeah, we'll cover pre-existing conditions because those are the right words to say. You don't hear them 
screaming at each other after an overall win, no less. You don't hear them saying, you're not respecting the language of the Austrian school. You're not respecting the markets when you vow to cover pre-existing conditions. Think about this. The Republicans can agree it's good politics to endorse a policy they don't believe in. But when it comes to a policy that they don't believe in, the Democrats are at each other's throats to rebut it. That is their actual position. At the end of the call, Nancy Pelosi said she disagreed with Spanberger because it wasn't a defeat. It was a victory. She did not comment on Spanberger's prediction that they were going to get fucking torn apart in 2022. It almost always happens, by the way. The president's party loses seats and power in the midterms. It's also true that Biden is in line to become the first Democratic president whose party doesn't control both houses of the legislature since Grover Cleveland. The second time, not the first. We also know that getting any agenda passed during a time of divided government isn't easy. But we also know that when they say divided government, they usually mean between parties, not within. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She believes we will get fucking torn apart in 2022 if we don't do the basic things of repairing this goddamn thresher. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He believes we will get torn apart in 2022 if we listen to the second through fifth tracks of Adele's 25 while taking in a sunset from a deck in Napa. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. She believes there is no curing a ballad. They're just putting a ballot in election recovery. The gist, hitting that relevant to time-wasting ratio of roughly 59 to 41% in order to stay in your feed. The last release, we may be slipping dangerously under that threshold. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.